0: Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, today we're going to have a party because we have not one, but two guests. The first guest I want to introduce you to is Chris Delalo. Welcome, Chris.
1: Hey, Jeremy, how are you?
0: Doing great. And then uh, second guest is Chris's co-worker, Sam Berg. Welcome, Sam.
1: Hey, Jeremy, how are you doing?
0: Uh, Both Chris and Sam work for VTS. They are a leasing and asset management platform for commercial real estate. I have been asking lately sales leaders and sales operations leaders to recommend folks who are top sellers and top managers uh, in their organizations. And Carol Yang over at VTS recommended Chris as an enterprise account executive, Sam as an SMB sales manager to have a chat with. So we're going to explore best practices for, for sales today. Before we do that, we're going to get to know Chris and Sam a little bit. And I'm going to ask you guys a tough question. And the question is, what is the one that got away deal-wise for you? Could it have been prevented? What could you have done to to fix it?
2: I'll go first because I think if the deal that got away for me actually came in, I probably would not be sitting here as a software salesperson. Back in, has to be 2009, 10, I spent like two years at CB Richard Ellis as a commercial real estate broker. I had a deal on the table to sell a a residential portfolio in Manhattan for $190 million. The buyer was a very good friend of mine. They were a legit buyer, and we just couldn't get it over the line because the buyer was asking the seller to hold a a note of $50 million over five years, but the commission was 2%, so it would have been a nice setup there
0: yeah for sure, and i I guess were they good. They were probably good about honoring the two percent. I know sometimes when a big whale of a deal comes in, sometimes you you start to see leadership negotiate with their rep to make to make it so the rep doesn't leave the company off the back of a humongous deal. How about for you, Sam? What's the one that got away for you?
1: I go back to when I was in high school, actually back in the day when you used to like sell tickets for like club nights, like the under eighteen teen nights and stuff like that. The sale was done, but it's a good example of like actually being thorough as a salesperson and making sure that the experience is going to be what you're actually selling or at least close to what you're selling. We kind of, we embellish a little bit, but me and my two friends, we wanted to do this teen night that we were going to host. We found this place called like, I think it was called Club Viper. This club was beautiful, like we called them, like we said, we want to do a night, like we organized all this stuff. Like we went out and we just slung tickets like we were just slinging it. Night of, we get to the club and a small detail that I guess we did not tell the club about was that everyone here was under 21 years old. They didn't let anyone in. So we had a line of drunk high school kids waiting to get into this club that we had sold this dream to of like, this is going to be the best, like all of this stuff, and we're getting screamed at. The Viper Club put us in this like one room, 1300 square foot apartment that they like had rented out above them and had like this paper sign that said Club Harlem on it. And that was the last teen night I ever promoted or did.
0: Wow. So we're already talking about sales and deals, but let, uh, let let's transition a little bit. And you know, before I ask you guys about your own best practices, I, I'd love to hear how you learn them. So I'll go back to you, Chris, as you kind of go back into your sales history. And you know, you've had the the opportunities you mentioned to work commercial real estate early in your career. You also worked for you know a number of other different types of companies, including big monster SaaS companies, which we will talk about. I'm I'm curious for you. Who is someone that comes to mind that was super influential in your past? That they had great sales game.
2: Going back to the the six years I spent at Broadridge, my manager there, Stacey Denoyer, she was great. I was younger, didn't really know. I came out of like five years in real estate, both residential and commercial. Which, if you know anything, that's like the wild west here in New York. You know, you eat what you kill. You're just out there hunting, trying to do anything you can to make some money, and just going to a place where here's your book of accounts here's how you structure, here's how you attack them, here's how you plan for them, really kind of set the stage for, for growing into to what I've become. And that was, you know, an extremely transactional, high volume calls and emails, just being consistent in your messaging and, and being consistent in talking to the right people really kind of jump started my career in like corporate sales, if you will.
0: Broadridge, I guess, is classified as a fintech company. You're an enterprise salesperson now. Was that more of an enterprise sale there or was it more SMB?
2: You know, it was more SMB. We were doing shareholder communications for publicly traded companies. So all of your proxy material, vote your shares, that was all coming from us. I mean, I was selling to CFOs, controllers of non-Fortune 500s, pink sheet stocks, and they had to do the job regulatory, you know, from a regulatory basis. So we had the opportunity to win the business every year. And it was just a very repetitive and transactional type of environment.
0: You know, in addition, I guess Stacy was sort of coaching you, I guess, on the individual call approach. I'm also wondering at the broader sales approach, what, what else was she a master at?
2: The big takeaway was planning and building pipeline, right? Like I hit my number my first year there. Second year, I didn't hit my number. It was the only year out of six that I didn't hit my number. And it was because I kind of cruised through the first year, hit hit my number, didn't do what I was supposed to do in the first quarter of year two, and I fell short in year two. So it was really that, that learning experience. If you're not planning, if you're not targeting your accounts early and often and, and starting the discussions as early as possible, you're not going to be able to turn them over in a three-month cycle.
0: Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. I guess i tr- turn that over, over to you, Sam. What, what about for you if you kind of wind the clock back to your Islanders experience or before that? And sidebar, one of my kids tonight is going to an Islanders game
1: The Isles are very good this year. At the Islanders, definitely more of a transactional sale. You have to be gritty in order to be successful there. So much of your success in ticket sales, in reality, is predicated on the team being good. My first manager was a guy named Eric Nadeau. He was actually a good friend. He passed away a few years ago, which is sad. But I always think back about like little nuggets that he taught me about Staying hungry, building pipeline, like creating actual value, doing the extra things and like being thorough, even if you're selling tickets, you can do that. First year I was there, the team was really mediocre. Nobody comes to the Coliseum, but he's like, if you do these things now, when this team blows up or this team gets good, you're going to be the person that they speak to. Like, you're going to be the one that they call. You're going to be the one that is going to benefit. And what his thought was, at least in ticket sales, was, the people who do the little things when things aren't going well, they really separate when things start going well. And he told me to be creative. So, one of the things I did my first year there was I infiltrated a Facebook group on the Islanders, befriended the leader of it. That turned into the biggest account that I had. It was just an interesting example, my first example of like what grit actually looks like. That's what Eric taught me.
0: You mentioned something that actually, I think in our nearly 200 episodes, hasn't, hasn't come up, which is salespeople leveraging evangelists, right? Imagine that there are some leading pundits, thought leaders out there that are not part of your organization. Do you actively cultivate relationships with them in order to get warm intros and the same way you would when
1: you were you know, engaging a Facebook group leader in the Islanders? I'll jump in on this. That is something that we actively do at BTS. For those unfamiliar with commercial real estate, it's an interesting business. If me and Chris own a building, our sales team is external most of the time our sales team the people who are actually leasing the space are from a brokerage group and that same team doesn't rep all my buildings so if i'm an own if we if me and chris own eight buildings in new york we might have eight different teams representing us so for us the brokerage community who ultimately like is using our product on a day-to-day basis owners might buy it brokers will use it knowing them selflessly helping them leads to them making intros to other owners. It benefits them also because it makes them look good, but it really is like the symbiotic relationship, I think, that we as a company are are very committed to working with brokers, not just trying to get a sale out of them because we're not selling to them.
0: Sam, how how do you actually create value for a broker that's independent of the VTS platform?
1: So there's a couple of different things. One, like Maybe I was talking a little bit more about the brokers that actually, they use VTS. We're not directly selling to them, whether it be going out to lunch, like dinner, highlighting them on LinkedIn, mentioning them to other owners. Like in the past, we would give PDFs to brokers who are trying to win business to owners and say, this is how you can use us to help you with your pursuits. And I think that's that's valuable, particularly in commercial real estate, where it's a tight knit. Ecosystem, it's like a spider web. Everyone knows everyone. And being ingrained in that, even if you're not a commercial real estate expert, which I'm I'm not, but being curious about how things work and how other people interact is a useful way to grow your business.
0: We're gonna transition a little bit from commercial real estate, but I assume that there sort of are our cycles of obviously when people buy. I mean, there's long-term cycles in commercial real estate. But Chris and I were were chatting before we pressed record about. End of year, end of quarter timing. Sam, you may have worked in these environments too, but Chris, you've worked in an environment with, you know, the traditional December thirty first year end. You've worked in environments with the Jan thirty one end. You've worked in environments with the June thirtieth end. And I'm curious, both from the seller's perspective and the buyer's perspective, what do you think is does does it matter, or is one more effective than another?
2: I think January thirtieth is the most effective. And there's a few reasons for that, right? Like you're getting-
1: Salesforce Jan 30.
2: And every other, not every other, but a lot of SaaS companies have jumped in on it. The reason behind it is because you're basically getting two year ends, right? Like, and what I mean by that is customers may have budget left over at the end of the year for a project, and you, you might be able to capture that while also lining up their next year items that will close in January. In some companies, they have to spend it or they lose it. Right, So these IT teams, or maybe it's a sales team, if they don't use that budget, it's just going back to the pool. And if there's something they want to do, you might be able to capture that in December. But you're basically getting two-year ends because you're getting December 31st fiscal for a lot of your customers. And then you're getting the Jan 31 kicking off the projects for the next year. I think that's the most effective. I think as a salesperson, it's extremely difficult because you are in full go mode from, you know you know how we are from Thanksgiving to, to year end, just add five weeks to that. It's tough.
0: I've, I've worked in different environments, mostly the December 31st and the January 31st ones. And when you work in a December 31st year end, January is dead. And when you work in a Jan 31 year end, February is dead. Maybe it's an obvious statement, but there's proof of existence that January can be an amazing month. And yet, I guess everything just gets pulled forward and or the salespeople are just so exhausted. I find that to be kind of fascinating. Sam, have you been in both those environments as well or, or mostly the December year end thing?
1: I've only been in December because when I was slanging ticks, it was the season. Preseason is really when you're doing it. There's definitely always a lull in January.
0: I try to post something actionable every day on LinkedIn and i was talking to uh, another sales professional lately an interesting perspective on discounting. And this relates to the end of quarter, end of year thing. And and she basically said, if your company does that, right, if there are discounts, not every co- in fact, you probably shouldn't, If you can avoid it, like have these end of month, end of quarter discounts. But if you do, then really, really early in the sales cycle, in order to establish trust, say, I don't want to come off salesy at any point. My company does end of month and end of quarter discounts. That timing may not be right for you, but I have an obligation to sort of bring that to you and you can decide whether to take advantage of it or not. So I posted that on LinkedIn and I'm I'm um, getting interesting reactions to that for you guys, like independent of whether VTS does end end of month or end of quarter discounts. What's your, what's your philosophy on, on using that as a tool to create urgency?
1: I think there's value in that transparency of like where you as the customer can leverage business levers that are important to us to get discounts and being open about that. Because at least the way that I think about sales, like I am trying to be consultative, thorough, and really learn about the company and the transparency sale mindset of those levers, you get to the negotiation sometimes and it's just like a nightmare, right? Like everything that like happened beforehand just gets thrown out the window and you're, you can't avoid it sometimes even with the transparency sale mindset. It's like an agenda statement at the beginning of a discovery call. You, you are expecting this to happen. You're not going to be surprised when these are the things that you can pull. Setting expectations is very important. I think what you're talking about like can help alleviate that.
0: Chris, what are some, uh, for you, what are some other expectations that you set with your customers early on in the sales cycle that help set you up for success?
2: Beyond being transparent with them is just being honest with them. Listen, we are a SaaS company. Every month that you can execute a deal sooner is worth X to us. And then at quarter end, there might be additional incentives that I can apply. And it usually, it, like to me, just having the conversation is so much easier than it's quarter end. Here's the deal. Like everybody kind of gets thrown off because having the conversation, the conversation could go in a couple of ways. Yeah, we're not ready yet. Or, oh, that's interesting. Like what types of incentives? And you could just have the conversation about it. Well, here's where I thought you were going to be. But if if we can do a deal here at the end of quarter or 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 in September or whatever, Q3, like Here's what I can do for you. If you're not ready, no big deal. And it's just putting it out there. And we're all salespeople, but I hate being the salesperson. I'd rather just say, hey, guys, like I'm your biggest advocate at VTS. I want to get you the best deal possible. So like, let's have a conversation around when you can, when you're expecting to to execute a deal and I'll work my best. That's the conversation. I'll let, I'll let some, I'll let a Sam be the bad guy when it comes to, to the pricing
1: discussion. I love being the bad guy. <laughs> so this is funny. Like there was something that my friend told me about that I think would work in SaaS sales and it would help the customer, it would help companies, it would help implementation. And this is what he told me. He worked at like this big company, like three or four thousand employees on a campus. And the cafeteria told people if they came at off hours, their their food would cost less. And they did this because the problem was between 12 and one, three or 4,000 employees, it was pandemonium, right? So to stagger out the pandemonium, they offered discounts on bookends. And I actually think, like, think about implementation projects and tickets and things like that. If you're offering just end of quarter incentives, buyers aren't stupid. Like, they know that, right? So they're going to take that. And then your implementation project, your queue is, is huge that might lead to a poor experience for the people that bought. So maybe there's an opportunity for someone to say, hey, actually like for us, October, November, you get more.
0: Basically a linearity discount to help linearity in the business. I I think that would be super powerful to help to help with linearity. As a buyer, I'm very much wired that way, Is I know I'm going to get offered some ridiculous discount at some point. And if I'm not ready, and sometimes I'm just not ready to buy yet, right? Like I've got to line up more people inside the organization to, to sign off. I'm going to hold them to whatever the lowest thing they offered me. I'm curious if, you, if you've if you ever offered a discount and then end of quarter or whatever goes away, the discount goes away and, and they're like, but you told me it would be you know 10% discount. Do you say, no,
1: sorry, that's just not available anymore? The most important thing is if you ran a good sales process, you understand what the impact of them not moving forward is. So you have to like a leg like to stand on. Keenan talks about this a lot. Like when you're discounting, it's because you have no idea why they're buying. But if you create uncertainty, like you don't say, no, it's gone on March 31st. You say, I don't know what's happening in April. I know what's happening on March 31st. Right. And it,
0: that certainty to know also creates urgency and pressure, but I guess gives you, uh, gives you a way out as well. I've only been one place that had truly zero discounting ever. When we first instituted it, the AEs hated it, but it turned out to be awesome. But that place had nearly monopolistic power in their market. What was it? It was Gartner. I was there for 16 years, but for the last, I don't know, seven, eight years, we had a no discounting policy. And uh, if you're gonna, you know, if you were gonna make decisions on IT purchases at the time, you kind of had to back it with, with the magic quadrant to keep your job. The magic quadrant, oh man, at Salesforce, we're in the magic quadrant for marketing for this. It's like
2: every single thing.
0: Speaking speak of Salesforce, um, they're known for having kind of great structure and training, Chris, for, for you, like what was the most valuable thing you learned when working for Salesforce?
2: Learning how to manage a team of co-sellers, engineers, you know, I was a core account executive, so I was responsible for every single product that Salesforce had. You would go to your, like, Salesforce account page, click on the team, there'd be 25 names on And they would change throughout the year, SDRs, BDRs, getting promoted, people coming and going at such a big place. But understanding who to leverage on your team, when to leverage them from a, a product specialist perspective, was probably the most valuable thing that I learned. And, you know, fast forward 18 months at VTS, we've grown from a one product company to a five product company in a matter of a year and a half. So those muscles are very, very relevant and needed now.
0: Uh, Staying on Salesforce for one more second, they have a role there that you don't find in a lot of smaller companies uh, but you do find in bigger companies, and it's basically like a subject matter expert slash evangelist, like someone who has been an executive in the company you're selling into, and you roll that person out, and they can have a you know CXO to CXO conversation at the highest levels of, of business. Did you ever leverage that at Salesforce? And do you guys, it's a luxury to have people on staff like that, because they're like consultants.
2: Like I never personally had it, but you know, there were whole programs of Are you covering a SaaS company that's acquiring other businesses? Like, here's a guy that you can bring into an executive conversation to talk specifically about how Salesforce folds in all of the businesses that they acquire and how they do it methodically and very, very rapidly.
0: Well, I'm going to wrap with a question I haven't asked yet because i I'm, I'm starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel to to do things here post covid i will I will I guess have been you know past dose two around May first, so hoping to get back out there. Uh, you know, when you guys are past vaccine dose two, what's what's the first thing you want to do when you get back out there?
2: Honestly, the first thing that I want to do is sit at a bar and have a drink. It's just a simple thing that I haven't done in a year plus, unless it's outdoors in the summertime. And it's something so simple
1: that you took for granted up until March 10th of last year. I'm with Chris. I kind of miss just being in the office and like just being around people. Some people aren't as worried about COVID as others. And that's that's perfectly fine. But like Chris and I both have wife, kid.
0: There's responsibility beyond just yourself. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I just don't want that anymore. Like it's going to be nice not to have to worry about that. But in our industry, I'll give one plug here. It was a forcing function to move the commercial real estate industry into what the rest of the world looks like when it comes to pre-qualifying actual spaces. Like This is something that we talk about all the time. But when we look for an apartment as a consumer, we go on Zillow, we check out what it looks like, and then we go and make we get our shortlist. Commercial real estate for COVID was, what is it, Chris? You do like 12, 13 tours in a day? Yeah, it's a full day or two. Now, what we're seeing, and I think it's a great thing for the industry, is that this pre-qualification of space is happening. It's making it so quali- more qualified leads are actually going into, into buildings, makes the experience for tenants better. And that's like really what we're focused on, is this external change that's happened and helping our customers really move into that, to that new world.
0: That's a super cool and efficient change. When, when I opened SalesLoft's office in New York City, I spent days and days, which... It was a fun part of it as well, but it does it does get to wear on you. And there's places that you're like, "Nah, you know what? That was never even a possibility." If I had just seen a picture for me, by the way, on the on the at answering that question to myself, I celebrated dose one by going into a mall the first time and got a Wetzel's pretzel. I just got the pretzel and I escaped very quickly back into my car to eat the pretzel. And then for dose two, my personal pleasure is I want to go to a movie theater. What are you I'm excited like, to
1: see? I'm excited to see Dune. That's that's like my number one movie theater movie. I want to say.
0: I am super excited by that. I, I'm one of the rare people who love the original Dune. Just to wrap, we could probably talk movies a whole a whole other episode here. Unfortunately, we got to go. So uh, if people do want to get in touch with you, Chris or Sam, or learn about VTS, what's the best way for them to do that? Just shoot me a note on LinkedIn, honestly. I think that's always the answer. I probably should ask that question differently in the future. But It was, it was a pleasure geeking out with you guys on sales, and, and thanks for dropping your wisdom today. Absolutely. Thanks for having us, Jeremy. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey, Salespeople podcast.